Well, good morning. Hope you had a good Christmas and a good New Year. Uh, my hymn book is gone, so you know we, we have to make sure that we're preaching. They're all gone. All right, we'll sort that out later. We're uh, we're in Philippians chapter two. Keep that open. I'm going to pray for us one more time as we turn to God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we ask today as we stop to reflect upon uh, the, the unity that you call us to, living lives worthy of your Son, we ask that you would teach us to be humble and to have the sort of humility that is born out of knowing who we are, who you are, and who each other is. And we ask it that we might live your ways in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, as uh, Adam opened Philippians chapter 1 for us, you would have heard this verse, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 27. Just one thing, <coughs> as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, uh, perhaps you would be hoping that the preacher would get up one week and say, I've only got one point this week, and you're sitting there thinking, oh, you ripper, it's going to be a nice short one. <coughs> Just one thing, as citizens of heaven, Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Now, of course, you know I can't do that. It'll be more than one point. But that's where Paul left us. There's this one thing that you need to learn. One thing that you need to take away. In a sense, that verse is the heart of Philippians. It certainly is the heart of the next couple of chapters, as really we try to apply that principle. One thing, as citizens of heaven, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. You, you are... You might be Australian, you might belong to a different nationality, but if you are a Christian, you belong to heaven. That is your citizenship. And Paul's instruction is, live a life worthy. Be, make your nation proud. How about that? Live out the person that you are and the place that you belong to. The, the, the instruction that Paul is giving them is one that is irrelevant to whether he's present or not, really is for all Christians. Look how the verse continues. Whether I come and see you or am absent, I will hear about you. Live it out such that your life will resound. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? That other Christians elsewhere will hear about you. St. Barnabas Anglican Church in Ingleberry. <laughs> they live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. In fact, imagine them knowing you and your name live a life worthy. But it's not just that your life will resound, as we heard last week, it's your unity. All right, he carries on. I will hear about you, that you are standing firm in one spirit, in one accord, contending for the faith of the gospel not being frightened in any way by your opponents. Live a life worthy of the gospel as you stand together to preach the gospel of Christ in the face of opposition, in the face of hardship and conflict, unity in the face of suffering. Just one thing, live your life worthy of the gospel. But how? How, how do we do that? What does it look like for us together as God's people to have this unity in the proclamation of the gospel in the face of suffering such that we might live worthy of the gospel. Now re really today and tomorrow we're, we're exploring that question. What is the application of last week's sermon? Next two weeks worth of application. How are we going to live that out? Uh, I hope you've got a handout and uh, there should be an outline for you on there of where we're going. 
And firstly then, as we come to chapter 2, Paul lays out for us the basis of this unity. Why is it that we are united? How is it that we are united? What does it mean to stand together? And he starts with an if-then. If you're, uh, if you're into logic, if-then. Have a look with me at chapter 2 and verse 1. If there is any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, well, there's, the, there's the if. If you have any of these things, any of the many benefits of the gospel of Christ, encouragement, consolation, partnership, if you are somebody who has received the mercy of God, the affection of His Son towards you, if you are a recipient of the blessings of the gospel, which I hope you are, then, verse 2, make my joy complete by thinking the same way, having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. If you are a recipient of the gospel, Paul says, and all the benefits of it, I mean, they're wonderful, they're marvellous benefits. If you have received them, then make my joy complete. Strange little sentence, isn't it? I don't know if you've noticed so far that joy is very much a theme in the book of Philippians. Uh, it's all the way through. And particularly, joy from Paul over them. He rejoices about them. You know, in 1 Thessalonians, uh, just, just as a little parallel passage, he writes this way about the Thessalonians, who is our hope or joy or crown of boasting in the presence of our Lord? Is it not you? Indeed, you are our glory and our joy. The thing that Paul is looking forward to in heaven is watching these people who came to Christ through him and who are now growing in Jesus, standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the bit that he's looking forward to. I don't know if you often think about heaven. What are you looking forward to about it? I mean, for me, often these days, it seems to be the rest, right? Oh, finally, the relentless pace is over. <laughs> we can stop and breathe, right? That, that, that seems to be my mind of heaven, which perhaps says more about me than about heaven. But for Paul, the joy, the thing that he's excited about, what he's looking forward to, what he desires, what he wants, is them. That they would have one mind, that they would have the same thinking, the same love, the same spirit, the same purpose. That they will live united by the gospel, contending together to see the word of Jesus go out. <coughs> in agreement over the truth and pulling together for its advance. Oh, that that would be us. That an outsider who walked in would look at us and say, what a group of people who are contending together, united in mind and heart and spirit and purpose, to see the thousands upon thousands outside of our doors. At the very least, hear the name of Jesus. At the very least, hear the call to bow before the Lord. At the very least, hear the word of hope. There is salvation. Contending for the one true gospel. Because there is only one true gospel, right? I mean, let's, let's be very clear about this. We, we've just finished a series in Galatians. If you didn't get that from Galatians, I mean, you go back and read it again because Paul hammered them over and over again. Don't listen to the false teachers. The gospel of Jesus, it's not subjective. 
It's not up to each one of us to kind of say, well, I like that bit or I like that bit. or I, I like to think that it means whatever you want to insert. You, you can't do that with the gospel of Christ. There is a truth to it that is independent of us. It's independent of my mind. It's the truth. It's objective. It's real. It's God-given. I, I was chatting with a guy yesterday who, uh, who was telling me, you know, non-Christian man, and he said, I... Um, I went to I went to sort of the religious school as a child, and I did the religious stuff when I was then. And, and really, the takeaway for me from all of it, the thing that I like, all of these, they all have this at the heart, was just to make sure that you do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And you'll be right, you do that, and you, you, you've nailed it, right? Now, one level, what a great message to take away! I'm sure he lives as a as a very lovely person because of that mindset. But that's not the gospel. <laughs> You can't say, well, yes, he's, he's got his own version of the gospel. No, this is not the gospel. That's not what it's about. That's not the heart of it. That's not Jesus. Real unity is unity of agreement, not just of, well, you have your version and I have mine. Make my joy complete, Paul says, by thinking the same way. Now, that, that's a statement of the mind. By having the same theology. By understanding God the same way by knowing the gospel the same way. Which, of course, then raises the question, well, hang on a second, how much agreement is necessary? If we're saying that unity is born out of uh, agreement of the gospel, well, who then can we have fellowship with and who can't we? We, we must be able to have some degree of freedom, right? The, the Bible speaks of those who are uh, stronger being able to live with those who have a weaker conscience, so at some level, there's a, 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 an appropriate amount of disagreement that is okay. And inevitably, the Pharisee in us wants to know, well, where's the line, right? What's the list of things where if we agree on this, we can be in fellowship, and if we don't, then we've got to kick them out, right? Just give me the list. That'll be the easiest thing. I can tick, cross, tick, cross. Well, sorry, so long, you're gone, right? Too bad. More on that next week. <laughs> have to make sure you're here. <coughs> The important bit is unity. That's the bit that brings the joy. It becomes very clear if you're at war. During peacetime, you can argue all you want. Who cares? If we're on the same side or we're not on the same side, if we agree or we disagree, it's peacetime. There's no real consequences. But when it's war, you want to know who is in the trench with you. Are you on my side or are you not? Because if you're not, then we have a very serious disagreement, don't we? We can't be in the trench together. Because tonight when I'm asleep, you're going to stab a knife between my ribs. Right? I, I mean, that's, that's going to happen if you're my enemy. That's right. When we're at war, then it becomes very urgent. The content of what we have in our minds becomes necessary. Remember, unity, presenting the gospel in the face of opposition. We are united, I take it, in these verses by the things of chapter of verse 1. That we have encouragement in Christ. That we have the consolation of His love. That we have fellowship together with the Spirit of God. That we are recipients of the affection and mercy of God. If you have these, then be united with one another. And look at the mindset that shapes it. Have a look at verse 3. The next bit of logic is a not but. Not but. Not out of selfish ambition or conceit. 
But in humility, consider others as more important than yourselves. Very simple verse, isn't it? I don't feel I need to explain it a lot, right? Don't be proud. Don't be arrogant. Don't be full of selfish ambition. Instead, look around the room and think of the people that you can see and say, I need to look after them. I need to serve them. I need to care about them. I need to consider them as more important than I am. That's a very simple verse, isn't it? Who can do it? <laughs> Certainly not easily. We don't compete with one another. When we all think of ourselves as the most important, all that ends up happening is, is com competition, right? If I'm more important than you, then I have to come out on top. But you think you're more important than me, so you think you have to come out on top, and man... I mean, just let it sit for a moment. Just maybe, even, maybe even take a little look around the room. This isn't abstract. Okay, there you go. Have a, have a little look. Have a little look at the people. It'll be awkward. It's okay. You might even make eye contact. Go on. Just, just because, because we're talking, this is the group of people we're talking about, right? We're not talking about a theoretical somebody somewhere out there. We're talking about this group right here. I almost feel like making you all stand up and stand in a circle and have a big hug or something, right? Because this... <coughs> it's okay, well, no, we're not going to get too carried away here. Settle down, David. Did you walk in this morning thinking to yourself, how am I going to serve my brothers and sisters? I mean, they, they are important people. I need to use who I am and what I have to serve them. Or did you walk in today thinking, no, what I need from church today is, is that not selfish ambition? Not only, Paul says in verse 4, everyone should look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. It's simple, and yet it's so incredibly hard. And I'll tell you what, my, my Pharisee mind, my legalistic heart, my self-centered self immediately wants to put a boundary on it. Well, hang on, David. You're telling me I've got to look out for the needs of others over my own. When does it stop? What's the limit? What's the boundary? When do I get to care about me? It's just me. I'm a sinner, right? It's just my mind. I'm sure you don't think that. But that's, that's where my mind goes. Unfortunately for us, Paul, or fortunately, Paul moves on to the example. You need to have, he says, the same mind as that of Jesus. You want to know how far you have to go to serve others? Well, read with me verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even to death on a cross. <laughs> where's, where's the line? Dave? Where's the limit? When do I stop and start thinking about myself? When is it me time? <laughs> well, I don't know. Are you a follower of Jesus? Is he your example? Is he your Lord? Is he your leader? Is he the one who's teaching you what does it mean to be self-sacrificial? Because if he is, 
take up your cross and follow me. Now look, there's so much in these verses, right? Verses 5 to 11 is, is in itself a series of sermons, so we won't, we won't dive into it very deeply today. Um, we did preach on Philippians a number of years ago, and we broke this bit up into two. So if you want to go and listen to something that deals with this more in depth, you can go and find those sermons online. But I want to point out two things about these verses about Jesus. And the first is the bit that we've already read, the humiliation. It's not something that we think about with Jesus. We use the word humble, and the word humble is a positive word. We like it. We would never use the word humiliation. That's a sort of a negative word. We don't like that word. But what Jesus suffered wasn't humbleness. It was humiliation. He went from the highest peak to the lowest of lows. Humbleness, we like to think of as, you know, you, you think a little bit lowly of yourself and it produces gentleness and meekness and that's a good thing. Humiliation is to be put into the very pits. Jesus being God became a slave. Our translations go with servant. They can't bring themselves to do it. But the, wo the word is slave, right? That's, that's the word. There's a difference between a servant and a slave. You know what the difference is? <coughs> both servants and slaves serve. That, that bit's not different. They both serve, generally at the pleasure of somebody else. The difference is freedom. One has it, one doesn't. The servant serves and is free. The slave serves and is not free. Jesus was in bonded service to the cross, in bonded service to the will of the Lord, such that the example that we have isn't of being a free slave who can choose to or choose not to, but of being the bonded slave, the, 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 the one who must live the life of service. You and I aren't free to choose what we please. I know I said a few weeks ago that we are, by the way. As, as we talked about Galatians, I said, can Christians do whatever they want? And I said, well, yes, they can. The nature of our service is a service to serve one another. We're not free to choose that or to not choose that. The Lord who we follow teaches us. Look around the room, bound to serve one another. And yet, because of his humiliation, look at what happens to Jesus. Verse 9, for this reason, right, because he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross, God highly exalted him and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Because of his humiliation, Jesus was resurrected to new life. Because his death for sin was so truly effective, God seated him at his right hand to reign and to rule forevermore. Because Jesus fully paid, God raised him. The resurrection really is at the very heart of the Christian message. Slide aside, by the way. When you share the gospel with people, do you ever talk about the resurrection? When, when, you, when you, you know, conversation with someone, you, you've been praying for them for years, you've had 
opportunities and you've taken opportunities to share. Have you ever talked about the resurrection? It's just an interesting little fact, right? Every single one of the evangelistic speeches throughout Acts always includes the resurrection. Isn't that interesting? You see, the resurrection is the bit that proves that it worked. The resurrection is the bit that says Jesus' death truly did pay for sin. Without the resurrection, well, at best you wouldn't know if it worked. And it probably didn't. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will argue, if, we don't, if Christ wasn't raised from the, from the dead, then we're a bunch of fools. Because everything we believe in is not true. The resurrection is, is the establishment of the payment because of the humiliation. Which, can I just point out, means that our path to glory follows Jesus' footsteps. You can't expect Christian glory without following the way of the cross. Here and now, the life we live now is the life of humiliation, of humble, bonded service to our Lord and therefore to each other. It's a very different mindset, isn't it? To think of your brothers and sisters in Christ as those who are important above you, that you must care for, serve as you are able. Now, as we come to the second half of the chapter, Paul has a number of sort of application points that he wants to make. <coughs> Firstly, look with me at verse 12, as he says, work out your salvation. Therefore, my dear friends, he says, just as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you, both to will and to work according to his good purpose. Work out your salvation. Now, this doesn't mean make sense of it. Work out, can, can we, we can take that to mean kind of make sure you understand it properly. That's not what he means. He means work it out. Apply it. Have it flow through into your life. Take what you have learnt and know of the gospel and live it. Work it out. Do it. But how wonderful is it, verse 13, that it is God who is working in you. So work out your salvation because it's God who's working in you. We saw it in Galatians, the, the fruits of the Spirit. These things that come from God, even as we are instructed to put it into effect. This wonderful partnership that is truly one way, for it comes from God and is powered by God, and without that nothing happens and yet in which we are called to participate. Work at it. Live it out. Of course, it's easy, isn't it, to be united with people who are displaying the fruits of the Spirit. You remember Galatians 5, the fruits of the Spirit? Peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, self-control. I mean, it's easy to be united with people like that. It's wonderful to be in gospel partnership with people who are displaying the fruits of the Spirit. It's kind of challenging to do the opposite. Those who are engaged in the works of the flesh, if you remember the first half of Galatians chapter 5. Work out your salvation. Live it out. He says, verse 15, do it without grumbling or disputation. Sorry, verse 14, do everything without grumbling and arguing so that you may be blameless and pure, 
children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine like stars in the world. Don't grumble. Don't argue. Strange to pick those out. There are so many things that he could have chosen to tell them not to do. Grumbling? Disputation? I mean, it's okay to have a good conversation, robust conversation. It's okay to, to engage in intellectual debate and things, but that's different to, to the argumentative disputation, right? The person is just always going to go, no, no matter what comes. Grumbling and argumentation are killers of selfless unity. Absolutely destructive. I mean, think about grumbling for a moment, right? What's, what's at the heart of someone who grumbles? Well, it's selfishness, isn't it? Because things aren't quite the way I want them to be. Because you aren't thinking quite the way I want you to think. That's, that's, the, that's the heart of grumbling. If things aren't going the way I want them to. The disputation and argumentativeness, the same thing. I want my things my way, thank you very much. It's the exact opposite of the humble, united mind who sees others as important and goes, okay. And I'll tell you what, can you imagine how different a person you would be in Australia if you didn't grumble? If you weren't argumentative? I mean, that's our national pastime, isn't it? That's, that's Pick any topic you like, any topic you like, and I can show you a whinge fest about it, right? Grumbling, no end, arguing about it. Politics, sport, religion, uh, uh, I don't know, pick the most in school crossings. Someone's going to be whinging about it. Someone's going to be, it just doesn't matter what it is. Australians, it's built into our psyche to whinge and complain and to argue. Shine like stars, Paul says, as you don't. Faultless and <laughs> in the midst of a crooked and perverted generation. Work out your salvation with gr without grumbling and disputation and thirdly, holding fast to the word of life. Again, 15, you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation among whom you shine by holding firm to the word of life. Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't labor for nothing. What do you want? To, how, what do we do? Well, we do what God tells us to do. That's what we do. How do we live? How He tells us to live. That's how we live. Where do we find the truth? In His Word. It must be our life, reading it, studying it, listening to it, speaking it dwelling on it, meditating on it, being shaped by it, holding fast to the word of life. Now, as Paul wraps up the chapter, he finishes with two examples for us, Timothy and Epaphroditus. I won't read through all of them again, but you go look through it as, as an example of two men who put into practice what we've just seen. I hope to send Timothy. I have no one else like-minded who will genuinely care for your interests. All seek their own interests, not those of Christ. I mean, Timothy, what a thing to have said about you. I have no one like him who is so selfless in his attitude. Isn't that amazing? Oh, to have that, your epitaph on your, on your tombstone. 
a man like Timothy. No one would know what it meant. <laughs> Everyone walking by would be like, well, who's Timothy? Right? But Epaphroditus, he was been longing for all of you. He was distressed because you heard that he was sick. He loved these guys so much that when they found out that he was sick, they got worried. And he's like, I don't want you guys to worry about me. I want to look after you. Even though he was nearly dead. Such powerful examples of caring, sacrificial unity for the sake of gospel proclamation. Just one thing. Live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Determined in yourself that as you look around and you see your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will adopt the mind of Christ such that you will serve them, love them, for the sake of our unity and partnership in the gospel, even as we contend with a world who hates our Lord. Now next week, as we come to chapter 3, Again, we're going to keep talking about the same idea. And we're going to look at the third example. Timothy and Epaphroditus were examples. Next week, it's all about Paul as an example to us of living out this unity. Let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for this, this, this tremendous challenge. Uh, it really is uh, profound to have the Lord Jesus held up in front of us as an example. We're sorry that so often we are selfish we're sorry that so often we are consumed with our own needs, desires and lives such that we, we lose sight completely of the life you've called us to live. This unity that we are to have as we contend for the gospel in the face of opposition. Father, please give us hearts and minds that are united in humility, that are united around the truth of the gospel, that we might live it out as worthy citizens of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name.